0: The reading today is from Habakkuk chapter 2. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood and destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the war will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from a wine's skin, till they are drunk, so that he can gaze upon their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Oh, what value is an idol carved by craftsmen, or an image that teaches lies. For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who comes to wood, excuse me, who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver, but there is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him.
1: Thank you, Rowan. Quite an intense passage, isn't it? <laughs> this is our second week looking at the book of Habakkuk. Uh, if you want to catch up on the other one, last week it's on, online. Um, and we're spending three weeks in this short book because it is a very important book for our time. Habakkuk addresses how to be God, the people of God, sorry, amidst difficult times. How to stand firm in our faith and how to find hope amidst the trials that we face in life, both at a personal level and at a global or society level. And last week, uh, the, the takeaway point was to pray and stay. If that doesn't sound familiar, it's because I didn't phrase it like that. I thought about that afterwards, actually. Um, I called it the faithful wrestle last week, which I like better, but doesn't have the same ring as pray and stay. But if you were here, hopefully you'll remember that firstly we saw Habakkuk prayed. He prayed with brutal honesty, in deep anguish. He didn't hold anything back from God. He really let God know how he was feeling, didn't he? His doubts, his concerns, his frustrations. How long will you tolerate this wickedness, God? When are you going to step up and do something? Do you see? Do you care? And remember, God did answer. But he answered in a way that upset Habakkuk even more. God said he would deal with the wickedness in Judah by bringing in the Babylonians. Habakkuk replies with incredulous disbelief. What are you doing that for, God? He doesn't pray pious, polite prayers. He brings his doubts to God, and he's honest, and he's real with God. And the second thing we noticed last week was that he stayed. He was faithful. In his doubts, he kept turning to God. And that's the difference between doubt and unbelief. Remember, doubts are expressed to God, whereas in unbelief, we turn away from God. But Habakkuk didn't, for one minute, consider it an option to turn away from God. At the end of the day, despite not understanding what God was doing, despite not really being able to see where God was in the middle of it all, he realised he didn't have God's perspective. He decided he was going to trust God anyway, even though it didn't make sense to him. And he could be like this because he knew something of God's grace. God's acceptance of him had nothing to do with how he prayed, nothing to do with how he voiced his doubts and complaints, because he knew God loved him because he is a God of grace, committed to his people in covenantal love. And like Habakkuk, we too see lots of suffering and injustice in our world, don't we? Evil seems to get stronger. The wicked seem to be flourishing. And those of us who are following the way of the Lord, well, sometimes it just feels like a big struggle. Like, often, like Habakkuk, our prayers are often the same. Where are you, God? Do you see what's going on in my life? Do you care? When are you going to do something? Like Habakkuk, we need to pray and we need to stay. And we finished last week with the challenge... To pray more honestly and to stay with the Lord even when it's tough. It's going to get a so I'm gonna to drop it all. Even when it's tough. Even when we don't understand what God is doing, we need to trust Him because He's got a far bigger perspective. He always knows what He is doing. Now, today's reading, as I said, is a very tough one. As someone said uh, as I read through the research on this, this is a little bit like the Empire Strikes Back in the Star Wars trilogy. It's the middle episode where things just get even worse. It's built on the knowledge from the previous episode, but we're still waiting for the hope in the final episode. And life life for us can be really uncertain, can't it? This is really difficult for us to deal with as humans. There's no sure thing in life. Relationships, plans for the future, health... There are many things that actually we cannot be sure about. And I, and I think that we don't like uncertainty because it means that things are out of our control. We love to be in control as much as possible, don't we? As much as possible in our lives. And you know what, Birth and death, those two things that happen to all of us, uh, often have a lot of anxiety tied up in them because of the uncertainty that they inevitably have and the lack of control we have on them. I remember with each of my pregnancies, feeling at times very anxious Because of the uncertainty of each pregnancy. Would it make it to full term? Would each one of them make it to full term? Would the child have a health issue? And then later, would this child ever come out? (laughs) Will I need an induction? (laughs) All out of my control. And there was a sense of anxiety that went with that. I think many are attracted to the idea of euthanasia because it feels like we're taking a measure of control over the end of our lives. Uncertainty is the pits for us. And we're very uncomfortable with it. If you're unwell or you're part way towards a diagnosis but you're not there yet, the uncertainty of that is often much harder to live with than once you get to the diagnosis and you can begin to prepare yourself for what's ahead. Now, although Chapter 2 of Habakkuk seems to be very demoralising and dark and long, it actually offers us some real certainty about what's to come. So that's the first thing that we need to notice here. This chapter offers us certainty. And the second thing that this chapter offers us is how to wait on the Lord in the midst of the uncertainty of life. So let's jump into the passage to see what it says about certainty and hope. Uh, Follow along with your Bibles. But chapter 2 starts with this declaration of Habakkuk. We read this verse last week. At the end of his second prayer, he's committing to stand at his watch. To stay in obedience, stationed on the ramparts, which is that bit at the top of a tower in the old days when they had towers and castles. Where you could stand up and you could get some perspective and you were really high up and it's where the guards stood. Waiting to see what the Lord would say to him. And then the Lord replies. And the whole of the rest of chapter 2 is the Lord talking to him. And he starts by telling Habakkuk to write down what he's going to say to him. This is important, what I'm about to tell you. This needs to be made plain on tablets of stone so that what he says is preserved and can be taken by a herald to the people. So we need to take notice of what's going on here. God is about to reveal something to do with the end. He declares that although it lingers and it might seem to take a while to wait for it because it will certainly come. It will not delay. And like we saw last week, God has a different timescale to us. But he has a perfect time. What, we, what God is about to say to have a cook for the benefit of all God's people may seem to take a long time. It may seem to linger in its arrival, but it will not delay. It will happen at the perfect time. We saw that last week with how the gospel was spread. And in the midst of lingering, we are to wait We'll come back to this command to wait a bit longer. Then the Lord goes through what is going to happen. This is the long part, the bulk of the passage. The enemy uh, in verse 4 and 5 is Babylon. So God is talking not about Judah here, but he's talking about Babylon. From verses 4 through to 19, God speaks about the evil in Babylon and all the nations, actually. But this... Evil will not last. It will not stand. This is a certainty we can be sure of. And God speaks about these five evils, or these evils and five woes. So if you were paying attention, you would have heard woe to this, woe to that person. It encompasses many aspects of evil, and every one of them is going to come to an end. The certainty that God brings to Habakkuk in the midst of his uncertainty as he faces the future is that God will bring about the end of evil. And that much is certain. And we can resonate with each of these woes that God addresses. Let me just quickly summarize each of them. The first woe is in verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Woe to the greedy. Woe to those who value money over morality. God says that evil will end. Verse 9. Woe to selfish security. The second woe. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. Setting his nest on high. We can't be sure of anything. And God will bring those who have placed their security in things other than him to an end. Verse 12. Woe to the violent. The third woe. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes town a town by injustice. God said this evil too will end. The fourth woe. Woe to debauchery, the fourth woe God addresses. In our culture of binge drinking and other addictions, gaming, pornography, drugs, sex outside of marriage, all these things will come to an end. This evil will not stand. In the final woe, in verses 18 and 19, woe to the one who idolises anything other than their creator. Anything that has been created, money, self, identity, possessions, anything that we give our worship and our loyalty too, that is an idol. Woe to the one who puts their trust in that thing and not in God. So all of this evil was around Habakkuk and it's still around in our day-to-day, isn't it? Just taking on different forms. We might not worship a wooden idol that we've, we've carved, but we might worship the car that we've bought. God will bring about justice for all people For all time. And this is amazing news. This evil that we experience and we're frustrated by and we're in deep anguish about. God is doing something. He does care and he says he will bring it to an end. In chapter 1, God told Habakkuk that he would do something. He was going to do something that he would not understand. And Habakkuk, remember, took that to be the Babylonians rising up. But remember how last week we looked at Paul and how he interpreted this passage in light of Christ and what he did on the cross. God did do something that we would never have believed in if we had been told first. Even now, many do not believe what Jesus did on the cross, even after he's done it. Christ dying on the cross to eliminate the evil once and for all. He has done something already. Justice has already been served. I've probably told you the story of the snake. It's one of my favourite metaphors. And I always find it helpful to, as I think about the cross and what Christ achieved, yet the pain that we still live amidst here and now. Now, snakes, for those of you who don't know, have a very primitive uh, central nervous system. And it takes a long time for their muscles in their body to realise that they are no longer attached to the head when they have been removed. Their reflexes take a long time to stop. And I, when I worked in the UK as a vet... Uh, where they are allowed to keep all sorts of weird and wonderful reptiles, like rattlesnakes uh, and bearded dragons, uh, I discovered that sometimes it took a full 24 hours for an, a euthanized reptile to stop moving. I learnt that the hard way when I took the animal out the back and told the person, just wait, it will be back in five minutes. Two hours later, three hours later, I had to tell them to come back the next day. And then I realised they take a long time to stop moving. And the story, this is how making the connection for you now because you're like, what the heck has this got to do with Christ? The story I heard goes like this. In a country where there are huge pythons, a lady called pest control, uh, there was this huge snake in her house and she needed it gone. So she called um, pest control. The man disappeared into her house carrying a machete. It was kind of like third world country. A little while later, he walked out. The lady walked over to the window and peered in and she could see this huge snake thrashing around There was blood going everywhere, he was smashing things, there was very much moving and wrecking things. And she said, hey, you're supposed to kill that thing, not just make it angry. The man said, it is dead, its head has been chopped off, it just doesn't know it yet. The snake is dead, it just takes a while for its body to stop writhing around and to stop causing damage. And it's kind of a bit of a crude metaphor, but at the cross, Satan has been defeated. His head has been chopped off, so to speak. But in this in-between time, before Christ comes again, we still feel the effects of his writhing body. We live in the time of what theologians call the now but not yet. It's kind of one of those phrases that you might have heard. It's the time between hearing about God's promises and what he's done and the realising of these promises to fruition, that frustrating time of the now but not yet. God's kingdom has been established now. His salvation is now. Christ is king now. Now, Satan has been defeated now, but God's kingdom has not been fully inaugurated here, and evil has not been wiped out just yet. It's a difficult time to be waiting. But look what we see in verse 14. Look what we have to look forward to with definite certainty. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole earth... Everywhere will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Evil will be gone. Revelation 21 speaks about that day when all evil will be gone. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more division, no more suffering. God is with his people. How long till we get there? Dunno. That's frustrating. But we do have certainty that the evil will end. Okay, that's very nice, Sarah, but how does this help me here and now? How do I live amidst the frustration of my circumstances now? It's a wonderful future to look forward to, but in all likelihood it's going to happen after I die. So how do I live here and now? Before I answer that, let me just share about the frustration that our bishop, J B N has about his wife who reads the last page of a book she's reading. Only once she has read the end does she then turn to the beginning and read the rest of the book. He can't understand it. And do you know what? I know people who do that. And I'm like, why the heck would you do that? It's a spoiler. But then she explained to him, Jamie, one day, the reason she does it is that she knows how the story ends. And that's what gets her through the ups and downs and the turmoils and the twists and the turns of the book. The turmoil of the plot is okay because she knows that the good guy or the good girl wins at the end. And God's done that for us. Here in scripture, he's given us the end of the story. In the pages of Revelation especially, and here as well in this verse, we see that God trumps and evil is vanquished. This knowledge is what should get us through the turmoils and the trials of life. It's what sustains us because we know what works out in the end. Well, that's easier done than uh, said than done, Sarah, you might say. i had a lot of conversations with myself as I wrote this talk. Well, luckily... God gave us lots of help. He gave us Habakkuk and Paul as examples. So bear with me and let's see how they did it. Habakkuk was told to wait upon the Lord. Ah, oh, did I push that a few times? Sorry, guys. Um, Habakkuk was told to wait upon the Lord. So you've seen the end of my talk, so you know we're going to get there eventually. <laughs> um, now we get this sense at the end of his second lament, at the end or the beginning of verse 1, verse 1, chapter 2, Habakkuk is already waiting on the Lord, isn't he? He's already standing at his watch, stationed on the rampart. He's already looking to see what God will say to him. He's already waiting in expectation. But then in verse 3, he was explicitly told to wait upon the Lord. No, not there yet. Um, Though it linger, wait for it said the Lord to have a cook. Now, we hate waiting, don't we? We really hate waiting, especially in our modern age, when technology has eliminated most of the waiting. Waiting means we can't speed things up. Waiting, it's out of our control. There's that word again. When the internet first came into our everyday lives, I can still remember being taught how to write an email. I was like, what the heck's an email? What's an inbox? I, was, I think I was sixth form. And I can still remember having to turn on the computer. And it, this big box thing that took off you know, half the desk. Um, probably took a full three to five minutes to turn on and for things to load, and it was on that funny text. Now this is absolutely unheard of today, but we get frustrated at waiting if it takes 10 seconds for something to turn on. I turned on my laptop and I timed it just for this. It takes seven seconds from pushing the power button to my first password. That's a lot of progress since I was in form. Now that is nothing. Seven seconds is nothing. But boy, do I notice if I have to wait 10 seconds. (laughs) Today, we can order things in advance of picking them up. We can track it's every progress, every step of the way to help us in our waiting. The post, even your pizza. I ordered a pizza for the kids the other day from Domino's. Yes, I'm that mum. Uh, And I could literally watch via their live pizza tracker the steps in real time when it was being assembled, when it was in the oven, when it was out and in the box when it was being picked up by the delivery vehicle and when it was en route, including down to the minute of its delivery. The tagline on their website is, by allowing our customers to see where their pizza is at, at all times, we can give them back their time to do the things they enjoy. In other words, so you can avoid the pain of waiting for your pizza because we all know everyone hates waiting. But waiting, does anyone else resonate with waiting and the hate of it. Yep. But waiting is actually a very key part of the Christian life. I'm sorry to say. It's a very biblical principle. Habakkuk was told to wait upon the Lord, just as it is crucial for the people of God to be able to wait on the Lord. And we find the call to wait upon the Lord time and time and time again throughout scripture. Some of you will have seen all these already. And I've got a few and I don't apologise for it because it is something that we really need to get our heads around. Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen: wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 33, we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Isaiah, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. Blessed, is, blessed uh, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait on him. Lamentations. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. But if we hope for what we do not have, yet we wait for it patiently. In Corinthians, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And there are many, many more. I could have gone on for the whole i talk worth of time giving you examples. It's something that is so scriptural, but we're so uncomfortable with it. Many of our frustrations in life and our complaints to God are essentially because we don't know how to wait on the Lord. Now, waiting upon the Lord is a pretty cliche saying in the church. If you told someone outside uh, that they asked you something and you're like, oh, I'm just waiting on the Lord, they'd look at you like you're from a different planet. Uh, How do you cope with tough times? Oh, I'm just waiting on the Lord Even within our church circles We don't really know what it means, do we? It just sounds religious We sing it in songs, we'll sing it in a song soon Um, But it sounds good, so we say it But Habakkuk waits on the Lord And Tim Keller helps to shed light on how he did it He says when we wait on the Lord It's not a passive thing It's a very active thing And there are three ways we're going to look at In the way we wait on the Lord Like Habakkuk did We wait on the Lord hopefully, perspectively, and obediently. We wait on the Lord hopefully. We know the end of the story, and I've already talked about this one. This gives us hope. This gets us through the ups and the downs because we know how it ends. We have hope that people who don't believe in God don't have. And God says to Habakkuk in this chapter, Two things that are tremendously hopeful that we can hang on to again. We've already read them, but let's see them again. Habakkuk 2, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is tremendously hopeful. And the last verse in this chapter, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth be silent before him. You can just imagine all of the babble of the world, all the evil just coming to a hush as the Lord is enthroned. So we wait hopefully. Secondly, we wait perspectively. Our perspective, as we saw last week, is very different to God's. We can't see what's ahead, but God can. But what is Habakkuk doing climbing up on the ramparts? He's up a tower. As I said before, it was a tower. Although he doesn't always see what God sees, he does see more of God's perspective up there. Not the whole picture, but he's a bit closer. Up the tower, with a bit of a closer perspective to God, suddenly his sufferings look a bit smaller. Our sufferings may look really bad until we compare them to the glory that we look forward to in Christ, both in the future glory, but also in the fullness of life that Christ offers now. Suddenly we see that the only sickness that can really kill me is sin that has been paid for already. Suddenly we see that the only debt that can really cripple me is the debt of sin, and that has already been paid for. Suddenly we see that the only true riches worth waiting for are in the presence of Jesus as we live his way, not by gain of my own work. Getting into the tower, waiting on the Lord as Habakkuk waited to see what the Lord would do, seeing his perspective enabled him to get through the tremendous trials that faced him. And he does get through it, as we see next week. Paul is another example that God graciously gives us in the Bible, of someone who meditates so much on his faith, on this and on this truth in God, that it gets into the very core of him, enabling him to get through any trial. This is a really great example. Paul suffered so much, so much that actually most of us don't appreciate how much he suffered. We often gloss over the accounts. That in the New Testament when we read. He was shipwrecked several times. He was kidnapped. He was imprisoned. He had a physical impairment that we only kind of know vaguely about. He was single, which many of you know can be a very lonely time. He was ridiculed. He was thrown out of places. He was chased down, and the list goes on. But yet he always writes with true hope and perspective. Romans 8.18 is really incredible when you actually think about this context. In Romans eight eighteen he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See, the hope of glory was such a reality to Paul, it was so enmeshed in his heart and mind that it meant that he could say that his own sufferings, which were, to be honest, I know, probably tougher than most of us will ever have to face, They were not even worth comparing to the glory and the hope that he has in Christ. Paul actively waited on the Lord by doing what Habakkuk did. Climbing into the tower, getting alone with God. Meditating and thinking and pondering and meditating some more on the glory that we have in Christ Jesus. Both now and in this life and in the age to come. Waiting in the ramparts to see the perspective that God might share with him. And even if it wasn't shown to him at least knowing that God did have a better perspective than he did. Have you meditated through that? Have you prayed? Have you thought more and more and more about the glory that God has, the hope in Christ Jesus that we have, so much so that it gives you endurance to get through the tough times in your life? This is really practical for us here and now. I know I need to do this more. As I wrote this, I realised how much more I need to get into that tower, meditating on the truth Of God on the hope that He promises, so that it makes its way from my head to my heart. Waiting on the Lord hopefully, perspectively, and thirdly, obediently. I said last week that Habakkuk did not consider it an option in the midst of his angst and anguish to walk away from God. Not only to not walk away from God, but he continued to walk in obedience to God. This is a really important point and it's my last one. We're nearly there. Tim Keller says Habakkuk purposefully uses this military language in verses 1 of chapter 2 of standing at his watch and stationing himself on the ramparts to make a point about obedience. Most of us here understand the rules about being in the army. Even though we're not in the army, we see it on movies or we know people have been in the army. You do what you're told. And you stick to your post. If you're on a watch, you don't leave your post for anything. You don't leave because you're not seeing any action. You don't leave because you're tired or you're hungry. You don't leave because you're not getting anything out of it. You don't leave because you don't feel like being there. If you're on your watch, you better do your job. Because there will be serious consequences if you don't. Either from your boss, or because an enemy might attack you and you missed it because you left your post. And then you'll face your boss as well. Now, Habakkuk treats obedience like a military post. He will obey and stay at his post no matter how he's feeling. No matter if he feels like he is getting nothing out of his relationship with God. No matter if he feels he doesn't understand what's going on. No matter his circumstances. No matter how tired he feels. No matter if he's weary or disappointed or getting none of his prayers answered. He will not leave his post. Imagine if you were a guard on duty who left your post and your boss asked you why you left. I just wasn't getting anything out of it. Couldn't see anything happening. Do you think you'd get away with that? And yet all of us at different times treat obedience to God like this. It gets tough, so we decide we want to walk away. In our tiredness, in our disillusionment, it's our disappointment. We turn to things and acts of disobedience that make us feel good for a moment, but they leave us feeling even more empty than beforehand. Pornography, drinking, drugs, unhealthy social media interactions, binge behaviours, whatever it is that you find easier to turn to than God. I've had a few times this last week where I have felt so tired and over things. As Graham said, we had a few rough things happen, and I've wanted to leave my post. One evening I was feeling particularly depleted. I did not have the sermon in me. We almost didn't have a sermon today, folks. Friday night, I went to bed early. Hadn't written it. And I was conjuring up all these explanations as to why we wouldn't have one. Graham was going to do a reading and we were going to do a Lectio Divina or something. I began to step away from my post. I found myself on Instagram looking at pottery videos. (laughs) And then the next minute I was looking at all sorts of random stuff that just made me feel like I had nothing. I did not have an exciting life. I began to feel ugly. I began to want holidays and flash things in my house because social media was telling me this is what I needed and this is what I I had to have. I'd stepped away from my post. My husband graciously reminded me to step back. Go and spend some time in Scripture, Sarah. And so I did. I'm so grateful for him. And within one minute, I was reading something that was filling my soul to such a level... That I physically felt better. I literally had a new energy to get this sermon written. This passage has challenged me. And I hope it challenges all of us. If you're contemplating leaving your post, spend some time in the tower. Get alone with God. Meditate on Him. On who He is. On the glory that He brings to you. Both now and here. Here and now and in the life to come. (coughs) Don't leave your post. Please don't walk away from him. Let's close by reminding ourselves that today we have seen in the midst of uncertain times, we find certainty in the promises of God. He will wipe out evil once and for all. And he's already done something about it on the cross. Secondly, we are to wait actively, hopefully, prospectively and obediently. Let's take some time now to spend in silence and we're just going to reflect on a couple of questions. And if the uh, music team would like to come and just play quietly and then uh, we'll get into our next song. So we're just going to spend a few moments reflecting on these questions. Do I know, really know, the hope that I have in Christ at a heart level? So much so that it sustains me amidst my trials like it did for Paul and Habakkuk. Do I really know that hope? Do I need to spend some more time in the tower with God, gaining his perspective and meditating on this hope that I have in him? Have I left my post? Do I need to step back from my post in obedience to what God is calling me to do and how he's calling me to live?